This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Lyme disease, it's quite common, with more than 400,000 new cases per year in the United States alone. It's associated with a constellation of typical symptoms, but it can also produce several very unusual and vague symptoms and can mimic a variety of other diseases. Because of this, an accurate diagnosis of Lyme disease can be challenging and can result in a delay or even lack of treatment. In today's podcast, we'll discuss the typical presentation of Lyme disease, as well as some of its more unusual presenting symptoms. We'll also cover how to establish a diagnosis and the current treatment recommendations. Our guest today is Dr. Elitza Thiel, a clinical microbiologist from the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Ellie, Lyme disease has been called the great masquerader because it can mimic so many other things, and we'll get to some of that. But So let's start by discussing the typical common symptoms of Lyme disease. What are the early signs that patients might recognize? Yes, technically Lyme presents in three different stages, but the most common symptom and the one that we all hear about is patients presenting with what's referred to as erythema migraines or more colloquially called uh, a bullseye rash. So we say most patients present and that's about 80%. So about 20% of patients will have Lyme disease and you will not have any sort of associated rash. Alongside the rash, you can have constitutional kind of nonspecific viral illness type symptoms. Typically, these are fatigue, myalgias, headache, less frequently fever. It's only about in 15 to 20% of patients. Lyme isn't really a fever inducing illness, but more of this like tired, achy feeling. So those are kind of the more common early signs of Lyme disease. I didn't realize that that many patients may not have that classic rash. That's quite a few. Yeah, it's a lot. And then on the flip side, that bullseye rash that we so classically associate with Lyme disease, it has a mimic. It's called STARI, and it's caused by an allergic reaction to a tick bite from a different species of tick, amblyoma species. And and STARI stands for Southern Tick Associated Rash, also bullseye appearing, but not due to Lyme disease. So it's really important to consider the geography of where the patient has been recently before this rash developed to help differentiate, right? Could it, is it Lyme or is it something else? Well, just what we needed to make things a little bit more confusing. (laughs) So how soon after the organism is transmitted to an individual by the tick, does this classic rash appear? Yeah, so it's anywhere from about 7 to 14 days is typical after a tick bite, but it can be up to 30 days in some cases after that bite that erythema migraines can develop. And same for the other kind of nonspecific symptoms we talked about. Mm-hmm. And the other thing to consider is that the the tick species that transmits Lyme disease can also transmit up to six other infections. And you can get co-infections with Lyme disease. And these co-infections 
can be parasitic in nature, other bacterial infections, viral infections, and these pathogens can lead to the development of fever and other kind of viral symptoms. So we talk about looking for the rash when we think about Lyme disease, but we also have to remain cognizant that these ticks can transmit other infections. And it's going to be important to test not just for Lyme disease, but some of these other pathogens as well. Okay. So those are the early symptoms, but let's say a patient either doesn't come in for an evaluation or we don't see the rash and we don't think of Lyme disease. What are the potential late complications <clears throat> that patients may develop? Yeah. So there's a number of them, some more common, some less so. One of the classic late manifestations of Lyme disease that we think of is arthritis. These typically can occur anywhere in, in the spectrum from a few months after infection to longer than that. So Lyme arthritis, typically it affects a single joint, typically a large joint. So it's not going to be usually your small joints, but like most classically your knee. So that's Lyme arthritis, most common in the U.S., kind of late manifestation of Lyme disease. But then you can also get neurologic manifestations, uh, neuroinvasive Lyme disease that more often occurs with Borrelia species that are endemic to Europe, but we see neuroinvasive Lyme disease not infrequently in the U.S. as well. And then I'd say the, the rare kind of late manifestations of Lyme are Lyme carditis and ocular infections, but those are much more on the, the less frequent side compared to arthritis and neuroinvasive disease. Pretty potentially serious things. Very serious, very important mm -hmm. to be diagnosed quickly and treated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I know the answer to this next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Mm. Can Lyme disease be transmitted from one individual to another? It cannot. I think it's really important to underscore this. Lyme disease is transmitted through the bite of an infected Ixodes species tick. We do not get it from person to person. Nor through a blood transfusion? Not through a blood transfusion. It's not really considered a mode of transmission. Does the organism get into the bloodstream? Absolutely it does, but it's there for a very short duration of time. And there has not been any to our knowledge, documented case of Lyme disease due to blood transfusion. Okay. Is yep. there a time of year that Lyme disease is more common? Yes. So we typically see Lyme disease cases peak with tick activity. So ticks go through three different life stages. And the second stage, which is called the nymph stage. That particular tick stage is the one that we really have to be concerned about because they're very tiny. They come out and become active in the May month through the fall. And these little guys, they're the size of a poppy seed. And once they attach, they take a long time to feed up to two days or longer, they can be attached. And because they're so small, we don't see them. The adult ticks the adult female ticks in particular, they also need a blood meal, but because they're so big, they're typically seen pretty quickly and they don't stay on and feed for as long as the nymphal stage tick. 
because of that tick life cycle where they feed during those summer and fall months, that's typically when we see the most cases of erythema migraines, for example. But again, Lyme arthritis cases can present almost throughout the year. Um, so we see those diagnosed in December, January, and February when tick activity is not really present. They're really dormant. So yeah, so those are kind of our peak summer and fall months is when we'd expect to see Lyme disease more frequently. Okay. Now, something you mentioned, I think is really important. These ticks are really very tiny. I know mm. when patients are concerned, they sometimes will either describe or even bring in a tick that they found on themselves. And it's the more mm -hmm. typical size tick, but these are very, very small things, aren't they? They are when they attach. Now, if they've been feeding and taking a blood meal for, you know, 36 hours or longer, they can become kind of the size of your, the, your pinky. They're full of blood at that point. A couple of important notes on that. If a patient brings in a tick, we can identify it in the lab and say, yes, this is an exodes species tick. Patient is at risk for Lyme disease, but we will never test the tick for Lyme disease itself because just because the tick is infected does not mean that that infection has been transmitted to the patient. So we always want to test the patient, not the tick. We get a lot of ticks in the lab, so it's an important thing to note. We will identify the tick. We will not test the tick for Lyme disease. All right. Lyme disease actually, I guess, got its name because it was first identified in uh, Lyme, Connecticut, but mm -hmm. um, it's not limited to just the northeastern part of this country. And it's actually, I think, present all over the world. But in the U.S., is there an area of the country that's more common for Lyme disease? Yeah. So classically, we think of Lyme disease primarily in the Northeast, as well as in the upper Midwest states. And if you look at a CDC map, those are, you know, highly endemic areas. What's concerning, though, is we're starting to see a shift in geography, a change and expansion of where these tick species are found and where we're seeing Lyme disease cases. So we are seeing more and more cases occurring between the upper Midwest states and the Northeast, so a lot in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan even. And then we're seeing cases go more and more into the Southern states. The question obviously is why? Why are we seeing this sort of geographic expansion? And it's multi-pronged. Part of it has to do with climate change and the fact that we're having, you know, more mild winters. We're not having as long of a dormancy of the ticks. And then we're kind of increasingly encroaching into the environment. Deer populations are major carriers of Lyme disease on which ticks feed, get infected, and then the cycle continues. So we are seeing an increasing range of Lyme disease. And I think that's something that uh, clinicians need to be aware of, particularly in regions where we haven't classically thought of Lyme disease being something to be concerned about. When we see patients and we suspect Lyme might be a factor in their symptoms, what tests should we be ordering to establish a diagnosis? So there's really two tests currently out there. One is a molecular test to detect the genetic material from Borrelia burgdorferi. And then the other set of tests are serologic, which where we're looking for an antibody response to the organism. Classically, we think of molecular tests as being the best 
the most sensitive of tests that, you know, able to detect the infection. That's not really the case for Lyme disease. So we really recommend doing serologic testing for Lyme disease for a number of reasons, primarily because the organism, Borrelia burgdorferi, again, it gets into the bloodstream, but it's not there for a very long period of time. So you should have a very narrow window for which to detect Lyme disease in blood. And so we don't recommend doing PCR testing on blood. The only time that PCR testing is recommended is if you're going to do a biopsy of an erythema migraines rash, where you're just not 100% sure that it is erythema migraines. So we can do a PCR off of the tissue. That's high sensitivity for PCR. And then also synovial fluid. So if you have a patient where you're suspecting Lyme arthritis, if you collect synovial fluid, doing molecular testing on that is also associated with high sensitivity. In all other cases, though, we recommend serologic testing on blood as well as in spinal fluid if you're suspecting neuroinvasive Lyme disease. The caveat with serologic testing and one that's really pervasive in the public is that it is not sensitive. And there's some truth to that. So as we all know, it takes one to two weeks for the host to develop a very strong, robust immune response to any organism, including Lyme disease. So if you have a patient recently bitten by a tick and you test them by an antibody test, it's going to be negative for Lyme disease. But if you retest two, three weeks later, they will likely have seroconverted. So timing of serologic testing is really important. And then the other key thing to keep in mind is that if you have a patient with an erythema migraines rash, that is essentially pathognomonic. We don't need to test by PCR or by serology. You start treatment instead because those patients still early in infection, they're not going to have a detectable antibody response. So when we suspect Lyme, let's say there is no rash, but we still Mm. suspect it. Should we initiate treatment immediately or wait for the test to turn positive? Or what should we do in that situation? Yep. Great question. So there are three criteria that one would have to meet um, to initiate prophylactic therapy. Those would be that a tick bite occurred with an exodes species tick, and that bite occurred in a highly endemic area. And also, if the patient can confirm that the tick was attached for at least 36 hours, which is, again, the amount of time it takes for the organism to get from the tick into the host uh, bloodstream. So that's for, for prophylactic considerations. Again, erythema migraines, if that's been documented, you would treat immediately. And then in in all other cases, I think it's important to wait for lab testing to come back as confirmatory uh, before treatment is started. So when there's no rash, there's no real harm done if we wait for a few weeks for these tests to potentially turn positive? Correct. Correct. Very good. So what is the recommended treatment right now for diagnosed Lyme disease? It depends on the stage and the severity for erythema migraines rashes. It's typically oral treatment with doxycycline or amoxicillin. For neurologic manifestations, Lyme carditis, it's it's a more intensive treatment with IV antibiotics for a longer period of time, anywhere from 14 to, to 21 days. And then for arthritis due to Lyme disease, again, oral antibiotics are typically appropriate, but that duration of treatment is significantly longer, about 28 days. 
Do we know how effective treatment is? So it is actually quite effective for the vast majority of patients. Symptoms uh, resolve entirely after treatment. For some patients, particularly those with Lyme arthritis, a small percentage of them may continue to have a kind of persistent synovitis that is refractory to additional antimicrobial therapy. And in those patients, it's recommended or alternative therapies have been recommended like use of anti-rheumatic drugs. And those have also been shown to be successful. I think a key component to keep in mind is that there has not been documented antimicrobial resistance in Lyme disease. So we do not have concerns about lack of effectiveness of antibiotics in, in, in Lyme disease cases. I imagine these serologic tests stay positive despite treatment. So is there any way to prove a patient has had adequate treatment or do we just assume that they have if they get the recommended antibiotics? So there is no test of cure. You know, it's something that patients want to know and clinicians want to confirm, but there is no test of cure exactly for the reason that you just mentioned. Antibodies against the organism will remain positive for months to years after infection. So there is no need, no benefit to test after completion of therapy. Really the best sign that treatment has worked is resolution of symptoms for Lyme disease. All right. As I was reading about Lyme disease, I came across a term that I hadn't seen before. It was post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. What exactly is that? This has gone through a number of different names over the years. It's essentially pers the, the presence of persistent nonspecific symptoms after completion of an approved antibiotic therapy. And these symptoms can persist for months to potentially years, unfortunately. It does occur in a small percentage of patients, depending on the study, anywhere from 5 to 15% of individuals with documented Lyme disease that have been fully treated can have these ongoing symptoms. And the criteria for how to classify or diagnose somebody with post-treatment Lyme disease, again, there's three key components to this. One is that there's been truly documented prior Lyme disease with a completed antibiotic regimen, and then the patient has essentially resolved the infection or stabilized, but then they've had the onset of a number of more subjective symptoms like persistent fatigue, widespread musculoskeletal pain, and in some patients, cognitive difficulties. You know, the question is what causes that? And honestly, the cause is still unclear. The prevailing thought, though, is that infection with Borrelia burgdorferi essentially triggers an autoimmune response in some patients that cause these kind of nonspecific symptoms long after the organism has been cleared from the patient. And that's not unique to Borrelia burgdorferi. There's a number of other infections that have been linked to causing these autoimmune manifestations after clearance of the infection. The problem is that there's no proven treatment for PTLSD, but one thing that has been shown over multiple studies is that there is no benefit of additional long-term antibiotic therapy in these patients. So that is really not recommended and honestly puts them at risk for other consequences of long-term antimicrobial treatment. That's what I wanted to hear. So there's really <laughs> no indication for retreating these individuals. No, no. Okay. okay. No. 
So can you get Lyme disease more than once? Unfortunately, you can, but that really depends on what the severity of your initial Lyme disease uh, infection. So in patients that have an erythema migraines rash and were treated immediately, because the organism was cleared essentially so quickly from the body, the immune system often does not have a long enough time to develop kind of a protective immune response to the infection. So in these patients with treated early Lyme disease, they are at significantly higher risk of getting reinfected. That's in contrast to patients who have recovered from Lyme arthritis or neurologic manifestations of Lyme disease. And those patients, typically their immune system has had a much longer time to mature. And so any repeat challenge with the organism is pretty quickly squashed by the antibody response and the cellular immune response. So reinfection in patients with more severe manifestations of Lyme disease has not really been documented. I seem to recall years ago that there was a vaccine for Lyme disease. Is my memory correct? Your memory is right on track. It's perfect. Oh. There, used, there used to be a Lyme well, there's, disease There's others vaccine. who would doubt that, but go ahead. <laughs> Right. Not in this case. Okay. So the prior vaccine was called Limerix, and its method of action was actually quite interesting. I believe it was a single shot. And the way the vaccine worked is that the patient was induced to produce antibodies that would specifically kill the organism when the tick was taking a blood meal. So as the tick was feeding on the patient, the blood with antibodies would get into the tick gut and essentially neutralize the organism in the tick. So stopping Borrelia, the, the bacteria, for getting into the patient at all. That sounds good. Clinical studies showed that it was about 80 or so percent effective at prohibiting Lyme infections. Unfortunately, though, the vaccine was pulled from the market voluntarily by the manufacturer in 2002 due to concerns of vaccine side effects. And that was widely publicized by the media. And there's a pretty dramatic drop in interest. It was pulled and is no longer available. Okay. Interesting. I thought I heard about that I, mm -hmm. a while back. I didn't, I didn't realize it was that long ago, but yeah, time well, flies. I guess. <laughs> well, Ellie, you've given us a lot of information about Lyme disease. Can you kind of summarize our discussion by maybe giving us two or three key points or things that you think are extremely important regarding Lyme? First of all, it's a very seasonal disease. Again, we talked about how it's primarily occurring in the summer and in fall months, primarily in the Northeast and upper Midwest, although that geography is expanding. So just being aware of what the rates are in your area of practice are, are really important. When it comes to diagnostic testing, I think a key thing to remember is that if you see erythema migraines, that's Lyme disease unless you live in the South, in certain areas of the South, but that's, that's Lyme disease and you should treat. Do not test, uh, treat right away. And then also when you're considering Lyme disease, it's important to consider co-infections. So at Mayo Clinic, actually available to anybody on the internet, we've put together a tick-borne disease testing algorithm, again, available to anybody that wants to look it up. We list which organisms one should consider for co-infection testing, depending on the region that you practice. 
Treatment, very effective, but really differs based on the patient presentation and severity of disease. And one thing I will mention is, you know, even though the Limerix vaccine was pulled from the market, there is another vaccine that is undergoing clinical trials right now. That's kind of exciting. And then there's also another group that's actually going to be trialing a monoclonal antibody for pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, in patients that live in high-risk areas to kind of limit the number of Lyme disease cases that we see. So I think those are the key points I would want people to walk away with. Okay. Well, we've been discussing Lyme disease with Dr. Elitza Thiel, a clinical microbiologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Ellie, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Uh, I learned a lot. There's a lot that you told me I didn't realize about Lyme disease. So thank you. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.